Our text is John 14. I'll read from 25 to the end of the chapter. John 14, starting at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word, and we pray that you would have us to love it and to seek to understand it and follow it. We thank you now for your presence with us and for the uh, path before us that will be lit by this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I get into this text, and it's only the last four verses because two weeks ago we covered the first three, but before I get into it, I just want to point out kind of for context that things are going to change. When we started this in John 13, verse 1, we were in the upper room, and they had just eaten supper, and then we began this series about final admonitions. And so they've been in that room. At one point, Judas Iscariot is booted out, sent on his uh, mission to betray Christ. And now it's also about to change because the last phrase I read said, Arise, let us go from here, at the end of verse 31. And yet, we really don't know where they go because then 15, 16, and 17 all occur. And then at 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, and this is where they went to the garden. And so I just wanted to point out that I don't know where they went. They're not in the upper room. They're not at Gethsemane. They're somewhere between. And so somewhere, obviously, though, where he can share his high priestly prayer, which is you know, one of the most phenomenal uh, uh, passages that we have, Christ speaking to us. So now first, verse 28. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice. Because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. So Jesus is happy. I believe he is joyful. He is with great expectation looking forward to returning to his Father in heaven. To resume that relationship with his Father that he'd had before he came to earth. Coming to earth changed that in a very substantial way. Uh, it is referred to as Christ's humiliation to come to this earth. And so he is now about to shed that humiliation, in part at least. We know that he remains in the flesh in heaven, glorified flesh. And yet, a big aspect of that was being down here with us in this world and in this 
uh, the midst of all this sin. And he's excited. He's about to shed all of this, and he's thankful for it. He's returning to his Father in heaven. And he encourages them to be happy for him. So he doesn't speak in uh, specifics here about what's going to happen, and yet he's said that before many times. Yet in Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So see, he's looking beyond the cross to the joy that awaits him in this return to heaven. And so obviously, we ought to learn from Christ's example, and we ought to also look past whatever it is that we are faced with in this world to what is beyond this world. And so that should always be our motivation. Whether it is going to occur over the course of a week or a month or a year or our lives, we ought to be joyful because of what lies beyond that. And so this reflects a future orientation, uh, and Jesus modeled that for us. We ought not to be obsessed with the present. That is what many people become, and so that's a very materialistic way to live your lives. Uh, to be obsessed with the past, I think, is even worse. But so we ought to be focused on the future, and he wants them to be happy for him, and that's how they can do it, by looking to the future themselves. Verse 29, and now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. So now he shares why he wants them to know this, and that is, this is a prophecy of the future. When this happens, I want you to realize that I knew it was happening. That's why I'm telling you. I don't want you to be fearful of the future because prophets foretell the future. And so God knows the future. Uh, Pastor Kaiser mentioned that during the intro. It is a source of comfort to us that God knows the future. And so these open theists that are saying and teaching that God doesn't know the future, there are innumerable paths that God has laid out, and it's up to us to kind of live them out. Uh, that gives us no comfort. What is comfort is that God knows the end from the beginning, and he's there throughout. We will not do things or experience things that God had not predestined us to experience or to fulfill or do. And so this leads to our being comforted. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. And so we know he's referring to Satan, the ruler of this world. There are many ways, many terms, phrases, euphemisms that are used to describe Satan in the Bible. And let me just list a few. There are more than this. Devil, angel of light, serpent of old, great dragon, the evil one, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and the prince of darkness. And so here in our text is this other one, ruler of this world. So see, a lot of these terms convey a respect for Satan's role on this earth. He is a foe. In a mighty fortress is our God, the very first stanza reads, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. 
So we are cast upon God in order to fight against our enemy on this earth. Satan still is powerful on this earth, even though he is a vanquished foe as Christ defeated him on the cross. And so Jesus had just told them, and last time we talked about it, do not fear, do not be anxious. Yet now he's reminding them that Satan is alive and well, and Jesus is departing because he has no part in this evil one. And so these don't appear to be words of comfort on the surface. Our, the greatest enemy you have in this world is coming, but I'm leaving. So that doesn't make us feel comfortable. It kind of reminds me of some of the plots of, of uh, superhero movies and hero movies where the hero leaves right at the point where the people need him the most. And yet it's really to cast them upon their fears, their anxieties. But Jesus had just said, don't be fearful, don't be anxious. And yet why had he been able to say that? because the comforter is coming. I may be leaving, but I'm going for a greater purpose and, the, and I will send the comforter back to comfort you. But this ruler of this world is coming and he has no part in me. Now, but that the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. That the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. So. His love for his father is going to be shown by what he's about to do. And so here he's hinting at what's about to happen. The disciples don't really know what's about to happen. He's told them, but yet in very human, frail ways, we don't accept the truth of the words that we hear often when they overwhelm our sense of what's going on. Uh, in a sense, maybe it's a way in which we're kind of protected from being overwhelmed. But yet, I don't believe his disciples really fully understood what was about to happen. As a matter of fact, in the garden later, we'll see that. Well, actually, we won't, not with this text. We, we will end this series just before uh, he enters the garden and enters into temptation. But So I can kind of speak to that. In the garden, during the temptation, he rebukes them for falling asleep. Can't you wait with me? In this, in this final hour. It's because they really don't know what's going to happen. They don't have the sense of uh, responsibility that Christ has in part because they just aren't aware of the details of what's going on. And it takes them weeks or months before they're finally really aware of that, long after even Christ's uh, death, burial, and ascension. Uh, it's after that when the Holy Spirit comes upon them that begins to remind them, bring to their memory what all has happened that they can then kind of absorb just the sense of responsibility that Christ is placing upon them. So Jesus looked past what he was about to suffer and because he knew that the joy was coming and we ought to do that. And now in our culture, some people might refer to that as uh, an ostrich sticking his head in the ground or like a coping mechanism to not fully acknowledge what's about to happen. But yet, it's obviously wisdom. It's obviously right for us in some context to do this. Not to the extent that we're not prepared for it, but there's just no need to obsess over it. So if bad things we know are about to happen, like for instance, if you're going to go in and have your wisdom teeth pulled Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, you just don't fret on that. 
You pray about it, you set it aside, you just forget about it. Uh, in some ways, I now see that I was kind of doing that relative to the recent layoffs at UP. I just really had kind of put it out of my mind until such a time as I had more information and had the action plan to work with. Uh, and I don't think that's unwise. I think that's what God would have us to do. He wants us to behave wisely. So Jesus was strengthening their faith by prophesying to them of what was going to happen. That should remind us too that our faith can be and will be strengthened if we focus on what God has already promised, what God has already fulfilled, uh, not even necessarily to us, but when you look through the Old Testament and see many prophecies and fulfillments of prophecies and the insights that the prophets had into God's plan, that gives us faith, that gives us joy and encouragement to uh, continue to be faithful to the Lord and fight against the temptations that we face in our day. So there is no earthly equal of Satan, and yet there is a heavenly victor over Satan. So we are imperfect in our flesh. We will fail God in our flesh, yet we are described as perfect in Christ. And so we have to walk in the Spirit such that we do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, and only by walking in the Spirit can we embrace the perfection that even we are in God and have that imperfection be obscured by His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word that reminds us of who You are and who we are. We cannot fight against the uh, evil one on this earth apart from Your strength. And so we pray, Lord, that You would have us to uh, walk with You, not attempt to remain apart from You and rely upon good habits to defeat the evil one in the temptations that we face. We ask you, Lord, to, uh, as Pastor Kaiser urged us earlier, to have the word uh, in our hearts, to have meditated on it, and have it ready, the sword ready, uh, to deflect the temptations as we face them. We thank you now for this time together, for the uh, evidence of your grace that we meet at the table. We give you thanks in Christ's name.